Standby playback. And now, live. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize for being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. I believe that together we can make America great again. Well, I can't exactly say that the horny hick from Arkansas, Bill Clinton, is endorsing Donald Trump, but I just couldn't resist playing that soundbite for you from many years ago. Yep, I believe that we could make America great again. Wouldn't it be great to have Donald, to have Donald Trump endorsed by Bill Clinton? Well, it's not going to happen. Another thing that is not going to happen is Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley lost in the South Carolina Republican presidential primary over the weekend, 60-40. Technically, it was 59.8% for Donald Trump, 39.5% for Nikki Haley, more than 20 points behind Donald Trump. And I know she's vowed to never endorse Donald Trump, but you kind of wonder, does she really have any choice? Is she going to put herself on the outside of that contest forever? I mean, she's not going to endorse Joe Biden. And if she continues to say she's not going to endorse Donald Trump, she kind of makes herself a bit politically irrelevant. And she runs the risk that when Donald Trump wins and he's in the White House for four more years, you're going to say, kind of like we do about National Review, the magazine that came out as Never Trumpers before Trump was elected in 2016, and say, what are you going to do for your follow-up act if you've decided to stake out that kind of position? I think Nikki Haley has some important decisions to make. Officially, as of this hour of this day, Nikki Haley is still in the presidential race in the primaries. Now, whether she makes it all the way to March 5th and Super Tuesday, the big batch of primaries that happens on the 5th of March, that remains to be seen. She's apparently lost some of her political contributors, and that's the only thing that's keeping her try at the presidency alive at this point. So what does she do? Lock herself out of government? Does she go back to South Carolina and maybe run for governor again or run for the U.S. Senate? But you know what? A whole bunch of conservatives in her state, the ones who produced that 60-40 result for her, they're going to remember You ran against Trump even when all the warning signs were out there that you have picked the wrong kind of race to run. Now, does she have a right to do it? I'm not going to argue that with callers. If you call the show and says she has a right to run, yes, she does. She has a right to go out and raise money from whatever rhino Republicans she wants. She can go out to all the moneyed people who can't stand Donald Trump and say, give me some more money. Let me run my race at least till the 6th of March, till after Super Tuesday. But I have a feeling they're going to see the same kind of result there. If she can only score less than 40% in her own home state where she was governor for years, how is she going to do on Super Tuesday? In any case, welcome to the Lars Larson Show on a Monday. Always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the list at 866-HEY-LARS. If you want to send an email, it's talk at LarsLarson.com. And our poll on X today, 
has to do with the cases, two of them, that were heard before the U.S. Supreme Court today. And I've got my own point of view, as you might not be surprised to hear, on this subject. Should the government be allowed to police big tech censorship? Now, you know, most of the time the Twitter poll or the X poll stands on its own. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. There are two cases that were heard by the U.S. Supreme Court in oral arguments today. And the question is, if Florida and the state of Texas have laws, because we've all noticed that most of the social media sites that are very powerful engines for sending information to the American public. And if you say, can those private companies decide, we don't like all these conservative voices and conservative points of view, so you know what, we're going we're gonna to exclude them, or we're going to throttle them, or we're going to shadow ban them. We're just going to keep people from hearing points of view that we don't like. In my point of view, that is acting like a publisher meaning newspapers can decide which letters to the editor they publish and which they do not. Talk shows like mine can decide which callers am I going to take. Now, I'm actually pretty uh, uh, pretty equitable about that. I love naysayers. I love it when somebody can actually make some kind of sensible argument to back up what the left believes. But um, if you're a social media company that has said you are a platform, that is, you've agreed not to be a publisher, you've agreed not to you know throttle things down because you don't like that point of view. Well, in that case, you should act like a platform and not act like a publisher. Publishing companies, whether it's newspapers, television, radio, books, whatever, have the right to decide what they're going to publish and what they're not. That's what a private company can do. Social media companies are also private companies, but they've agreed to act like platforms, meaning other than things that are literally dangerous, like publishing the plans to a nuclear weapon or a recipe for ricin, which is a powerful poison that can be used as an element of terrorism. Other than that, you don't you don't get rid of voices on your social media platform because you don't like their conservative point of view. And yet that's exactly what Google and Facebook Meta have done. Uh, Texas and Florida have said we've had enough of it. That's going to end. And now we get to find out whether or not the Supreme Court will decide that that's allowed. Or are they going to say, no, all these social media companies will be able to regulate what is said on their social media platforms. They'll still get Section 230 protection against getting sued, but they'll get to decide to silence conservative voices. Unless they come out on their own and say, you aren't going to need those laws, we're going to make sure that conservative voices are just as welcome as liberal voices on social media. If they did that on their own, there'd be no need for the law. But they can't resist the temptation. They've acted on it so many times, and they've done the bidding of the U.S. government. And the only reason they have that special protection of Section 230, which is not shared with companies like mine, uh, the only reason that they have that protection is because they claim to be a platform. If you want to be a platform, then certainly act like one. Let's go to Naysayer John. Hey, John, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? I think Nikki Haley's laying groundwork in preparation for four years from now, and the Republican Party needs a long-term strategy. This fighting from behind on a daily basis is insane, and it's not a winner. But does it make sense if you're saying she's laying the groundwork for four years from now? That may be true. But when she comes back, 
How many of the people she's going to be seeking, the votes of conservatives and Republicans, because there is a difference between conservatives and Republicans, how many of those people are going to remember you were the guy that tried to knock Donald Trump out of the contest? You were the, the, the woman who said, I'm going to run for president, but if I don't get the nomination, I will not uh, endorse the eventual nominee of the Republican Party. How many people are going to vote for her four years from now with that kind of background? Lars, I think four years from now, there will be an overwhelming female voting age majority, and she's a better candidate than Harris. Oh, Kamala Harris? I mean, that's you kind of set the bar low there, didn't you, John? Isn't, isn't anybody on the planet a better candidate than Kamala Harris? Uh, not even Joe Biden? No. Joe Biden actually gets better approval ratings than Kamala Harris. John, thanks for that. You're a good naysayer. Back in a moment. You got the Lars Larson Show. you like what you hear right Lars Larson welcome back to the program it's a pleasure to be with you on a Monday and if you haven't heard already uh, both President Trump and President Biden are going to be on America's southern border with Mexico less than two days from now so on Thursday Joe Biden's going to go to Brownsville Texas about 300 miles away from ground zero for the border issues these days ground zero of course is Eagle Pass Texas it's the place that just last week they nailed about a hundred million dollars of illegal drugs that a smuggler was trying to get through the legitimate port of entry it's also the place where thousands and thousands of illegals have simply waded across the river to Shelby Park and entered the United States with the assistance of Joe Biden's Border Patrol. So Trump will be in Eagle Pass. Biden will be in Brownsville. And now the question is, why this matchup? Why is this happening now? And in case you didn't know, this will be Joe Biden's second visit in his entire life to America's border with Mexico. He has only been there one time before, although the White House has tried to lie about him being there at other times. Eric Rourke is Director of Research and Public Relations at Numbers USA. Hey, Eric, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. What significance should we see, if any, in both Joe Biden's visit to the border this week and Donald Trump's visit on the same day? Well, I think it shows that this is going to be a top issue, number one, I think it also shows that the Biden administration has finally realized that they at least have to pretend to care about what's going on. And, and you know, I have to say, for, from internal conversations that we had from day one, we sort of, you know, we figured that, yes, they'll put in some policies or more accurately roll back policies that were in place, the Biden administration would. And then the public blowback would cause them, as it did for the Obama administration, to, to realize the political damage that was happening. But you know, basically up until now, what they've said is the border is secure. You know, it doesn't matter what you can see or witness, you know, not only at the border, but in across the country. Um, the border is secure and there's nothing that we can do. And only it was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was only until a couple of weeks ago that the, the messaging changed to there is a crisis 
it's Trump's fault, and we need Congress to pass a bill so that the president can do something about it. And you, you, you pointed out this is the second time that President Biden went has gone to the border. He went back I believe in January of 2023, maybe, yep. to El Paso, where there is a big, beautiful wall um, and very little illegal immigration. But both of the places, Eagle Pass and Brownsville, I'll point out that Governor Abbott has made, in the state of Texas, have made um, attempts and been successful to an extent uh, in, in putting up their own barriers and stopping illegal immigration. But it's also uh, Secretary Blinken, Defense Secretary Blinken and President Biden did go to Mexico um, a while back, met with the president of Mexico, and clearly um, they cut some kind of deal because Mexico has made efforts to, to stem the flow but what we're seeing is now it's being diverted away from Texas and into Arizona and California. San Diego yesterday, I mean, there was busloads. Uh, one of the council members from San Diego was at one of the places showing the people coming into California. So Texas is quieter now, but the, the cartels, they adjust. And as long as people can get in somewhere, they're going to flow in that direction. Well, Eric, though, are they, is Biden counting on the press corps? to not to ignore the fact that he signed 94 executive orders that had to do with basically undoing everything t- Donald Trump had done, that when he says this is a problem created by Donald Trump, even though the number of crossings during Trump went to a dramatic low and it has gone to a stratospheric high with Biden in place after signing those executive orders, is he going to be able to sell the gaslighting of saying, yeah, this is Trump's problem. He created it. Really? Yeah, that, that, does does that make question. sense against the facts? Well, it doesn't make sense against the facts, but we're also talking about politics in D.C. And, and media in D.C. And here's I was sort of taken aback when the Senate deal failed and President Biden went out. And the first thing he did was to blame it on Donald Trump. And to sort of well, what they seem to be doing, continue to do, is set up the election on a, sort of a referendum on who was better on, on the border. And even people who don't like Trump and even people who hate Trump and would never vote for him and think he's the worst thing from, you know, since Pol Pot, Putin and you know Hitler put together, know that he was tougher on the border. That's one of the reasons the Democrats don't like him is because they thought he was too hard on, on illegal immigration. Yep. And for the White House, but here's something that's very important. Mitch McConnell in the Senate really undercut the House GOP, particularly Speaker Johnson, because they had passed a very, very strong HR security bill, HR2, right. which was which would have gone a long way to ending this crisis and stopping President Biden from doing what he was doing. Now, he has the powers to secure the board already, but he's abusing parole authority. He's abusing the asylum system and other things that HR2 would have ended, particularly when it comes to just catch and release. They had this bill. They stake their, you know, they still, that's their position. So in the Senate, Mitch McConnell and Schumer cut a deal, a very bad deal, and they ignored the fact that H.R. 2 exists or even simply that the House had a position on the border. They said, this is a, our deal, take it or leave it. And when that was rejected and, you know, it went nowhere because not only did the House reject it, but also many of the senators of the GOP said it was a bad deal. The American people were against it. But, it, but by doing this, Mitch McConnell handed President Biden his talking point that the Republicans don't want to solve the problem. And because President Trump had come out against it, what you know Biden's basically arguing is that it's Trump's fault that the border is broken. If whether or not he can sell this not only to independents, but also to you know some of his base, 
who are very, very upset in, in places like Chicago or New York or other, you know, what we saw in, at the University yeah, of Georgia. Yeah, let them suffer week. as far as I'm concerned. But, Eric, I mean, I would think that the sensible thing to do, say you've already got this bill that's passed the House, H.R. 2. Let's take H.R. 2, we'll trim off the rough edges, and we'll make that the Senate version. But it was very clear they couldn't get that from the Senate, could they? So they craft this brand-new package that says we're going to, and correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, we're going to institutionalize 5,000, up to 5,000 illegal crossers a day into the country. And Langford comes in and says, hey, look at the deal we came up with. And it's it's institutionalizing a soft version slightly softer, 5000 a day instead of 10000 a day, with a whole bunch of other garbage added onto it that made it even worse, and they thought that was going to get into the House? Again, that's my point. Is you know, They kept saying, this is the best deal, take it or leave it, and the House said, well, you didn't even, nothing from H.R. 2 was in the bill, let alone the fact that they even acknowledged that there was a position that Speaker Johnson was adamant from day one this is our position. Let's work from here. And you know, none of that was included. And this for, for President Trump, former President Trump, when he goes to the border, it's important for him to message on this, to point this out. Now, you know, of course, he's going to take um, credit and say, you know, I killed a bad deal. And that's fine. The politics of it, you know, everyone understands. But he also needs to point out that there is a very good bill that still is out there. This, you know, HR two, when it was it passed back in May of 2023. So it's not as if they just passed it really quick to sort of come up with something. It's been out nope. there and the Senate has known it's been out there. It got 46 votes in the Senate when it was introduced as an amendment last session. And two of the Republican senators who would have voted for it were not present. So it has significant support. And that's really the message needs to be firm. Number one is H.R. 2 is the, is, is the position of the House GOP, and it should be the position of the Republicans. But also, as important as some people might find Ukraine or, or Israel or any other uh, funding priority, you trade nothing for border security. Now, you could use that for leverage, but border security isn't a, you know, a bargaining chip. And it seems like too many in Congress want to pass something, say we've gotten, you know, solved the problem of border security. Now let's move on to our real priorities. While the border, as you were pointing out earlier, that was a show bill. That would have just codified the policies that we're, we're seeing while, while the Senate would have claimed, you know, we've actually done something to solve the crisis. I mean, this seems almost like a kamikaze with Joe Biden saying, I'm going to make the election about the border. And like you said, even on the Democrat side, you say, hold on, you've got a terrible record on the border. I think his approval rating on the border with Americans is about 26 percent. Meanwhile, Donald Trump has a largely sterling record on the border. And people like AOC are left with saying they're putting kids in cages, which just gives the rest of us the chance to say, yeah, and who invented those cages? That would be Barack Obama and Joe Biden. And uh, I, I hope he does make it all about the border. That's Eric Rourke from Numbers USA. Back in a moment, I'll get to your phone calls and emails. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. We tend not to. Just think of him as your concealed carry. This is the Lars Larson Show. 
thing that unites them as Christian nationalists, not Christians, by the way, because Christian nationalists is very different, mm-hmm. is that they believe that our rights as Americans, as all human beings, don't come from any earthly authority. They don't come from Congress. They don't come from the Supreme Court. They come from God. Yes, they do come from God. And that is Heidi Prisbilla, who is a reporter at Politico. She was showing up on, I believe it was MSNBC. But this young lady gets on on uh, on MSNBC and says, yeah, these folks are all Christian nationalists if they believe that their rights come from God. Well, I've told you probably a thousand times on this show, our rights are our rights because they come to us uh, as God-given rights. Now, I believe that. Does that make me a Christian nationalist, according to Heidi Prisbilla? Apparently it does. And, of course, she tries to differentiate and say, somewhere out there, there are some people who call themselves Christians who say, oh, no, my rights don't come from God. They're not God-given rights, as described by the founders of the United States of America. They're rights I get from government. She even throws in there that they don't think their rights come from some earthly authority. I'd love to interview Heidi Prisbilla and say, which which earthly authority in government grants me my First Amendment right of free speech and freedom to practice my faith? Which one of those rights is granted to me by a government? And as the founders always feared, if you've got a right that you got from government, the government can take it away. But she literally has gone into what Federalist describes as meltdown mode. Here's the way they put it. Politico reporter Heidi Prisbilla went into meltdown mode after receiving much-deserved blowback for penning a scaremongering report about how a second term of Donald Trump would bring about a wave of what she calls Christian nationalism. In their lengthy diatribe published on Tuesday, Prisbilla and her co-author Alexander Ward warned that Christians close to Trump are secretly plotting to advance America's founding Judeo-Christian values should the former president defeat Joe Biden this November. Now, uh, do you see any problem with that? As they point out, if only there were a historical document instrumental to America's founding and written by a founding father that contained the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed, uh, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Apparently, Heidi Prisbilla from Politico must have missed that day in college when they talked about where your rights come from. And I've always found it one of my favorite questions to ask somebody who's a naysayer uh, who wants to argue rights. I say, well, if you don't get your rights from God, where do they come from? And that usually stumps them because they have no idea what to say. Well, they're from the Constitution. I said the Constitution does not grant a single right. What it does say is it limits the government's ability to interfere with your God-given rights. As I said, an interview with Heidi Prisbilla might be very fun, but it sounds like she's in meltdown mode right now. Let's go to Dennis. And if you want to jump into the best conversation in talk journalism, it's always right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And naysayers always go first. Hey, Dennis, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hi, yes. Uh, so the government shutdown is just around the corner. I yes, mean, it maybe is. Maybe practically in three days. And my position, which I believe millions of Americans, the silent majority even, at least um, uh, on the GOP side, uh, is that we, we've had enough. If, if the Democrats are not uh, willing to compromise on our principles, 
which are at least two of them prominent ones, close the, the border, yep. close the border, and the second one is that we're running a $35 trillion deficit. Uh, isn't, it, isn't it about time yeah. to cut back on uh, non-discretionary uh, spendings? I mean, we've been compromising with Democrats all along, like, including the 14 uh, crazy Republicans in the Senate that uh, voted for that uh, uh, Israel, Ukraine first, the America last, uh, you know, uh, bill that has stands no chance of passing in the House, thank God. But, you know, it's, isn't it about time that the Democrats are going to, to come to the table and, and say, okay, common sense, we got to cut back on, on spending. we got to close it, it the border. Cause my, exactly. It, and my position... Oh, uh, yeah, it's my position that I'm willing to, to have a, a government shutdown, just like in uh, 2013, uh, as long as the outcome would be that we close the border and we cut back on spending. I, I'd be perfectly okay with, with both of those, Dennis, because you're right. No, let me just correct one thing. We have almost $35 trillion in debt. Now, that doesn't count all the unfunded mandates, but just pure debt. We have a deficit that's now going to hit $2 trillion per year. So the deficit of the, is the amount we're short. We have $4 trillion coming in. $6 trillion is what the government's spending. It's like a guy who makes 40000 a year spending 60000 a year on, on his uh, lifestyle. And, and you say, well, that can't go on for very long. And we're rapidly, Dennis, reaching the point. I'm not an economist, but, I, but this one's very easy to understand. The amount we are spending on interest just to pay the interest on the debt we owe is now equal to the Pentagon's budget, about $800 billion a year, uh, $750 right. to $800 billion. And you realize you're like that person who, uh, in his or her own life, has run up so much debt on credit cards that you're barely making the minimum payments and you're not paying off any of the principal that underlies those debts. You're buried. Now, you can go bankrupt, but if the U.S. government were to default on its foreign obligations, which it's never done, so if we have all these Treasury bills where we promise to pay money, I know there are conservatives out there who say, well, we owe all that money to China. We'll just wipe it out. No, there, there is some of it is owned by foreign governments, a bunch of foreign governments, including China. China happens to be the biggest country that owns U.S. debt. But do you realize where a lot of that debt is being held is by banks, financial institutions, pension plans. In other words, it's owned by Americans or American institutions. If the U.S. government defaults on it, we're in trouble. And this is going to get real bad real fast or worse than it is now because if you have a house, Dennis, you probably have a 30-year mortgage. If you have a car payment, it's a, a, a payment that maybe you're paying three or four years. A lot of U.S. government debt is is... 10 and 20 year debt. So you, you get the same payments for the next 10 or 20 years and then you've paid off the debt. But about a third right. of the debt of the entire debt is short term. It's a year or two years or three years. And that means it's rolling over every year. Well, you know where interest rates were when Joe Biden came in, the 30 year mortgage rate was uh, under 3%. I think it was 2.7 or 2.8. Today, it's 7 or above 7. So if you're borrowing short-term money, and, and credit card debt's like 25%. So if you've got a third of U.S. government debt is on short-term notes that are rolling over every year, they're rolling over from lower interest rates 
to higher interest rates, which means yeah. even even if we stopped exceeding our budget, which we are this year by almost two trillion, even if we didn't add any more spending, we spent within our if the federal government spent within its means, the amount of interest we have to pay on the money we owe is getting bigger because the interest rate is like being locked into one of those uh, adjustable rate mortgages where you say, well, what's going to happen January 1 of next year? Our payment's going to go up. How much is it going to go? We don't know. But we know whatever we're paying this year, it's going to be more next year, and that's without even the crazy spending. So I'm with you. I mean, if they have to shut the government down to be able to get spending under control and lock down that border, that is so much more important than Ukraine, than Taiwan. It's so much more important than Hamas and Israel because it's an existential threat to the United States government. If we have to shut the government down to get them to do something, so be it. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. emails our poll on x today should the government be allowed to police big tech censorship and by censorship what i'm talking about is all the social media companies think facebook meta think twitter or x uh think about google that if those entities are censoring they are saying we don't like conservative speech we're going to throttle it down we're going to shadow ban these people we're going to in some way hold back on conservative speech on our platform then should the government be able to say you're not allowed to do that? I would say yes to that. Uh, I'd say, yeah, the government should be able to do that, or that platform can lose its Section 230 protection, at which point I think they're going to be effectively out of business. You can find the poll on X at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. It's brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC's got the conservative values I believe in. I joined a long time ago. You can join, too, at amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. Let's go to Cyrus. Hey, Cyrus, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Uh, looks like Cyrus is not listening, uh, which unfortunately means he loses his opportunity, and that's okay. couple of things I want to bring you up to date on. We got word late today that Catherine Herridge, the young lady who was let go by Fox, she found a new home at CBS. She was at CBS until a couple of weeks ago, and at that point, CBS Paramount did a massive layoff. 800 people. Now, I understand companies have layoffs, but you would think that CBS Paramount would have looked at Catherine Herridge and said, this young lady is one of our most powerful investigative reporters. She does a fantastic job. She's very powerful or she's very uh, popular with our audience. Well, they let her go. Any private company that's operating under uh, uh, under employment at will laws uh, that under those employment at will laws, they let her go. They have the right to do that. What they did, though, before she left CBS was they seized all of her private records, meaning uh, Rolodexes, contact information, confidential sources, the kind of things I have never in my entire career as a journalist, and I've been one for 49 years now, 
I've never seen a newspaper, a TV station, a radio station, or any other kind of journalistic enterprise seize the private files of any of its reporters. When they're let go, they take them with them. Well, CBS caved in today. They got a lot of grief for it last week, and well, they should including from me. I thought this was outrageous that they would grab this information, especially knowing that Catherine Herridge was one of the reporters doing a fantastic job of covering the Hunter Biden controversy and other controversies involving the White House and Joe Biden. And the idea that CBS would seize her files well today, they finally returned those confidential files to Catherine Herridge. They got a lot of pressure. The House Judiciary Committee, uh, Jordan and others were saying, we're going to call folks up from CBS and have them come testify to the Congress. What would justify uh, taking somebody's confidential files? The answer is, I don't think anything in the world would do that. Her laptop was taken. Other confidential source information were confiscated and locked away at CBS headquarters. CBS has now caved in. That organization, uh, at this point in my book, I've always thought CBS was a little bit suspect. That pretty well nails it down. Let's go to Bill in Tennessee, listening on uh, Todd Starnes Station, KWAM. How you doing, Bill? What's on your mind? Yeah, you know, I'm doing just great, Lars. I've been on your show many times, and I appreciate the opportunity every time. I, I spent some time on your show with you talking about my foundation here in Memphis, and you were talking about the... Uh, shadow banning and everything by social media. Yeah. And I believe I'm 99.9% positive I've been shadow banned, including my foundation on Facebook. And I just found out this week that the ads that I've been trying to run haven't been running. I just realized it because when I tried to create one, it said it's been restricted since 2023 for a violation. And, of their and you were, and all you I'm were doing unaware of that for three years. Uh, two years, one year, actually, Tw- March 2023 to... Oh, 23, okay, so one year. So, uh, well, then yeah. then maybe Tennessee needs to have a law. And I don't know, it, it's not very easy to see laws like this enforced state by state. But both Florida and Texas have said, we're going to stand up for people when social media decides to ban folks because of content. And by that I mean, Bill, just so people understand, if you're doing anything illegal... If you are trafficking in child pornography, take the stuff down. Absolutely. If you're putting out information that puts national security at risk, like I've always used the example of plans for an atom bomb or recipes for ricin, I could see a justification to take that down. But we all know what's happening in this case. Liberals who run these big social media outfits, other than maybe Musk, have decided we don't like all this conservative talk. We don't like Donald Trump. We don't like his supporters. We're going to simply throttle their messages. And when they do that, when they do that, they ought to be called on it. Exactly. I've gone from seeing 40 people see a post to seven. And that just tells me that things are not right. Then maybe it's something, and I... In as much as I don't, I'm not crazy about the idea of the government getting involved in telling people what they must publish. I look at it this way. If you're a social media company, the only way that Facebook and Twitter or X now exist is because of Section 230. Because if they didn't have that liability protection, they'd go out of business. Now, publishers like my show, like a TV show, like even a cable show, we don't have that protection. Why? 
because we are publishers. We decide what goes on the air and what does not go on the air. And uh, and right. so as a but as a publisher, I'm res- even if if you were to say something crazy and defamatory, I end up taking the heat for that, you know, and, and not just with my audience, um, but with I could get sued for something you say. So we try to guard very carefully what we allow on the air. But that's because we're a publisher. We don't get the special protection. If they stop acting like a platform, they should lose the protection right away. Let's go to Matthew in California. And, Bill, thanks for the call. Hey, Matthew, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, thanks a lot. A lot of the stuff that's going on with uh, Facebook and the social media posts, I just wanted to give a shout-out to what's happened to me just last week here in Grass Valley, California, Nevada County Court System which has been convicted to the judge wanted to throw me in jail for one day for one Facebook post, two days for another Facebook post. You want to throw you in jail for free speech? What'd you say? Correct. These were posts with pictures uh, about my local elected officials, who I also ran against in the last two years ago, November election. Say quick, Matthew, because we're coming to the top. Yeah, just um, local gold rush politics are alive and well in Nevada County, California. If you want to be involved and speak your mind, be prepared to be arrested and assaulted, because that is what is going on. Unbelievable. Matthew, thanks a lot, and good luck to you. Send me some more information by email. The email address is talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out our Instagram feed, and you can always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize for being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Our message to the black community in this election will be a very simple one. If you want strong borders, safe neighborhoods, rising wages, good jobs, great education, and the return of the American dream, then congratulations, you are a Republican. It's pretty simple. You know, that's a very simple message, and Donald Trump is doing very well with that message. Welcome to the Lars Larson Show. By the way, the numbers show that black American voters are increasingly likely to vote for Donald Trump instead of voting for Joe Biden. And you don't have to work hard almost any day of the week. I can find lots and lots of interviews with black Americans who say Joe Biden hasn't done anything for us. Barack Hussein Obama didn't do anything for us before that. Donald Trump has done a lot for black Americans, and I'm going to vote for him. And the Democrats who have treated black American voters as though they owned their votes. It is that ugly. I'll remind you that the party of slavery since 1829 has been a party that has taken black American voters for granted. And if you listen to the content of Joe Biden's or of uh, Donald Trump's message, it's saying you want you want a secure border. Do you want jobs to be available? Do you want to put Americans first? If you want all those things, you are a Republican. Now, what do you get with Joe Biden? Well, let's see. 
You get a massive invasion of workers who are going to come into this country and compete not just against black Americans, but all Americans. But it's going to have a decided effect on people of color in this country. And it's not good for them. Is massive inflation that has made gasoline and groceries unaffordable to many American families, including black families, is that good for them? Is shipping off tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine a good thing for any Americans, let alone black Americans? And don't forget, Donald Trump is running against the man who famously went on a radio show, not this show, but he went on the uh, Breakfast Club show. And uh, he finally got frustrated enough. He said, well, if you're not voting for me, you ain't black. He is never going to live that down. And as I've reminded you, Joe Biden is a blatant racist and has been his entire political career. I mean, go back to the speech he gave in the U.S. Senate saying you can't desegregate schools and bus kids around because my kids will have to go to a jungle school. Hold on a second. Sounds like there's more than a dog whistle there. And then his own vice president, Kamala Harris, who on the campaign trail, before she finally gave up her failed and miserable campaign to get the Democrat nomination, accused Joe Biden on the debate stage, said, you are a racist. And Joe Biden has, over the years, said so many things that would indicate to you that in his heart of hearts, he has little regard for people of color in this country. And then finally, capping it off with, well, you say, well, that was the old Joe. The new Joe is different. You mean the Joe who just less than four years ago said, if you're not voting for Biden, you ain't black? That one is never going to go away in any case. And then you've got Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton, after hearing what Donald Trump had said. And Donald Trump also said that uh, some black voters may identify with him because Donald Trump has a mugshot and a disproportionate number of black Americans have a mugshot. And Al Sharpton went on this crazy rant in which he shamed black Americans, the people who are watching his audience who are black, because not all of his audience is black. In fact, uh, he has a, an audience of some kind over at MSNBC called Politics Nation that he actually said, shame on you. And he chastised them for backing Donald Trump. I would love to talk to Al Sharpton. In all the years I've been doing this, I've never had the chance to talk to the guy. I don't have much regard for him. He's been a tax, uh, if not a cheat, then at least some guy who didn't pay his taxes on time. I pay my taxes on time, and I make a whole lot less money than Al Sharpton does. But he proclaimed that it was part of a pattern of remarks from Trump and his surrogates that he says should offend and alienate black voters. Here's the quote. And those blacks that are standing there with him, have you no shame? You've actually got one of the biggest race baiters in America, and Al Sharpton, shaming black people for supporting a president who did a tremendous good for America and for black Americans as well. And yet Al Sharpton is now getting a tremendous amount of blowback for having said those things. And, well, he should. Welcome to the Lars Larson Show. If you want to jump into the best conversation in talk journalism, it's here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And a shout-out to our friends in Kansas City, Missouri, who listen to Great Talk Radio on KMBZ. That's AM 980. And you can find my show there as well. To your calls now. Let's go to Dalton in Alaska. Hey, Dalton, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? 
what's happening, Lars. I want to talk about Catherine Herridge, but but first off, Republicans vote because they're scared to fight. That's what it comes down to. Okay. What? They vote because they're afraid to fight because there's that you've already had three elections taken from you and you still and not you, but all of them. We're still going. I'm not voting, man. I'm ready to fight. What are you kidding me? So watch this. How about we do both? Well, watch this. Well, they don't know how to fight. Look around. Hey, well, Catherine Harris. Why are Republicans getting upset about them taking her? This woman sat there for 30 years and lied to us as a Democrat, sold us out, and now everybody's worried. Listen, now everybody's worried about her taking us. She wasn't going to tell us anything anyway. Even And who cares? We all know what went on. We know what's happening to our country. It's being destroyed by baby-raping communists. But, but we, don't, and, don't, and don't, don't hold need. up a second. Hold up a second. I've talked to Herridge before. I don't know her well, but she's been on the show. I think she's a very good investigative reporter. Could you give, for the audience who's listening, who don't think that Catherine Herridge is a is a, a bad reporter, can you give me your favorite example of something she did to sell us out as, a, as an investigative reporter? Our country was taken over by pervert, baby-raping Democrats, and she didn't tell us? Well, hold on a second. She is a reporter. When I was a reporter, I kept my opinion out. It is the job of reporters. Well, you to keep shouldn't it. have. That's how we got to this point. No, but Dalton, you, you got to understand. You should have blown it up. Well, but Dalton, uh, today I put my opinion in, but the show is labeled as an opinion show, which means I occasionally have people call the show and say, you put your opinion in too much. I said, well, it's an opinion show. I give my opinion. I make it possible for other people to give their opinions. Catherine Herridge, as a straight-ahead reporter, is not a pundit. She's not a talk show host. She's there to report. And I think she's, honestly, I think she's done some very good reporting for literally years, both at Fox News and now at CBS. And whether I agreed with her or, I mean, whether I thought she was a great reporter or not, the essential question here is, they stole her files. That is something that, as I've, I've told people since, it ha- since we found out about it last week, I've said I've never seen a journalistic organization ever steal a reporter's files. Can you at least agree that even if you don't like her, that stealing a reporter's confidential source information is wrong? The NSA is listening to us right now. These perverts are sitting in a room listening to us, putting us on a on, on some kind of list right now. They're- well, they may be adding to my audience, and in that case, I guess I'd have to tell them thanks. Dalton, I appreciate the call. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. And always guessing what he'll say next. Here's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll get back to your phone calls and emails here in just a moment. But something tragic happened. I mean, I I would consider anybody who decides to take his own life is a tragedy, whether I agree with what he did or not. I think that this is the an indication of mental illness of some kind. An active duty Air Force member who set himself on fire in protest, referring to the war against Hamas as a form of genocide. Uh, the man who took his own life is Aaron Bushnell, 25 years old, 
And uh, he died when he set himself on fire in front of the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. And I thought we'd talk about it with Joe Early, formerly Army, Army Intelligence and currently a Republican congressional candidate in West Virginia's 2nd District. Joe, welcome back to the program. Lars, how are you doing this evening? Thanks for I'm doing very well. And, and so I don't forget to do it later. Tell people where they can find your website, find out more about your campaign, and perhaps help you out as well. Okay, well, I appreciate that. Uh, you can find me at uh, Joe Early, and that's E-A-R-L-E-Y, the number 4WV.com. Uh, that's my website. You can pick me up on my socials right there on the website. Very good. Well, I, I want people to hear what you've got to say, but I know they can learn a lot more about your campaign. But I want to ask you about this man's death, Aaron Bushnell. It, it suggests to me that he had mental de- – I mean, anytime somebody commits suicide, I'm not a psychologist, but I, I'd say that in, that's an indication of mental uh, difficulties uh, that he should have had some help with. The fact that he was active duty Air Force uh, says to me that he had problems, but apparently none of his higher command knew uh, just how bad they were. Well, you know, uh, yeah, it's tragic. This is uh, uh, indicative of the current chain of command uh, structure and the uh, the way they're probably looking at things in the military. You know, uh, when I was in the military, uh, and, you know, so I've, only, I've been out for, uh, you know, a little over 10 years, but I would say that we always uh, looked out for our battle buddies. We knew uh, what was going on with everyone in the unit because that unit cohesiveness is very, very important to mission accomplishment. Yep. And this tragedy exposes quite a bit uh, about our military today. Well, and I and guess I, if you'll I forgive me the say, comparison, Joe, but a little over 10 years ago, do you remember the case of uh, Major Nidal Hassan of the United States Army, who went nuts and murdered 13 people and shot up Fort Hood, Texas, shot about 30 people? He clearly had difficulties as well, but they were also ignored by even people around him who wrote formal notices. And and I think the problems are worse today under the woke policies of the military. But for some reason, he his problems were ignored as well. And it cost a lot of people their lives. Yes. And, and like I said, this is uh, indicative of our military, the state of our readiness today. Uh, when you have a soldier that uh, or an airman, a Marine, or, or a seaman that's uh, been radicalized uh, through uh, through uh, online anarchist groups and, and pro-Hamas groups. Uh, someone was not looking out for this, this young man, and uh, he lost his focus on, uh, you know, maintaining uh, pride as an American uh, warfighter, maintaining pride as an American, and allow himself to become radicalized, and then uh, to the point to where, Yes, he committed suicide, but on the flip side, this could have been even even more tragic. He could have armed himself like uh, Hassan did at Fort Hood, Texas, and went into a place, and, you know, this is subjective. It's, you can't prove a negative here, but he could have easily went the other way to take other human life. He could have. Um, you know, but, yeah, this is a, this is a, this is a tragedy, uh, and, and, and I feel very, very bad for the family. Uh, it seemed like he came from a good uh, American family. Uh, had a good upbringing and and just would become radicalized and like I said, this is indicative of our woke military uh, to allow uh, war fighters to become um, subjected to a social experiment uh, that 
in, in the ESG, DEI, and, and critical race theory within the military structure. They're wasting tons, billions of dollars, actually billions of dollars, in, in not preparing our war fighters. And training and unit cohesiveness is a combat multiplier uh, when we need uh, war fighters to actually do their job. Yeah, and to, and to protect them as well. If he was not fit for military duty, he should have been sidelined and given some help. But certainly not to allow him to get to this point where he's apparently so distraught he decides to to you know light himself on fire and uh, and and he says uh, and he was he was giving all those indications. I mean, some of them we're picking up on now. He did a post a few hours before he committed this act of self-immolation uh, and said. What would I do if I were alive during slavery or the Jim Crow South or apartheid? What would I do if my country was committing genocide? The answer is you're doing it right now. And that was that was one of the things he posted as one of his last posts. Uh, I guess I just wonder what's it going to take to set our military right, assuming we get new new uh, a new commander in chief in January. Well, you know, it, it takes a long time uh, for for cultures to um, reform themselves after these social experiments. I mean, I spent time back in the 90s and, and the 80s in the military and, you know, went through the don't ask, don't tell, and a little bit of cultural shift in the United States. But we still had our warfighting capability. Uh, right now, uh, it's going to take leadership. It's going to have to stand up to this woke military uh, operation that's going on right now and stand up and say, look, uh, we're losing uh, before we even start to fight. We have got to look at this and, 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 and uh, retake our military and re- regain our military readiness by get rid of this kind of social experimentation training that's going on and permeating itself, not just through our, our, our society at large, but within the, the organization that is constitutionally funded to protect the United States. We have got to uh, really look at that and say, do an assessment and say, we're not ready to fight. We need to prepare our war fighters to uh, engage the enemy, destroy the enemy, and protect the Constitution, not to uh, become radicalized and even support adversaries of the United States like Hamas, Hezbollah. I mean, if, if they continue the forensics to dig into his social media presence, who knows what they're going to find? I'll give it another 24 to 48 hours, and it will probably go quite a bit deeper in his radicalization. I'd be willing to bet you're right. I'm talking to Joe Early, who's former Army Intelligence, currently running for the United States House of Representatives in West Virginia's 2nd Congressional District. Joe, tell me about what are the big issues for people in West Virginia. Well, you, you, the biggest issue right now is... Uh, a balance between uh, border security and bringing West Virginia's uh, uh, per capita death rate from fentanyl uh, way down. Right now, we're highest in the nation of 90 per 100,000 uh, of drug overdoses, most of it fentanyl and opioids. Uh, that's the first thing is that border. We are uh, a border state impacted by the cartels. Uh, the other part is the economy. You know, West Virginia just lost two major industries in West Virginia uh, in my district alone, uh, the Allegheny Wood Company and uh, a tin manufacturer, uh, a national tin manufacturer. Uh, so to combine two of those uh, in the last in the last 14 to 20 days have uh, 
uh, selectively about uh, 1,800 jobs in, in uh, West Virginia 2nd District. And these are just announced. So one of them is the, uh, the economy. Like I said, we, ha- we have got to keep manu- American manufacturing intact. We have to, and we have to uh, impose tariffs on uh, nations that are not uh, supporting our economy and undercutting us. We have to do that. We have to be bold and take the, take the initiative to protect American jobs. Um, that's the big, those are the two big hot-button items right now in West Virginia 2nd District. Uh, like I said, border security. Uh, taking back America, protecting American citizens. I mean, we saw that young 22-year-old uh, young lady uh, in murdered in uh, Georgia that was killed by a Venezuelan. Murdered. I mean, that's blood on on this administration's hands. Not just uh, President Joe Biden, but also uh, Mayorkas as well for not doing his job. And I hope uh, and pray that the Senate will see exactly what needs to happen with Mayorkas. And, and actually, uh, and, and absolutely and right. And I couldn't agree right. with you more. That's Joe Early. He's running for the U.S. Congress from West Virginia. Joe, it's a pleasure, and thanks for your service in uniform. You got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Investment in Talk Radio, and it's free. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Monday. Always glad to get your calls. Let me give you a couple of thoughts first, just to start with. Nancy Pelosi has hit another jackpot with another stock trade. Wow, what a surprise. She had a significant investment in NVIDIA, which has turned into a financial windfall. She got a gigantic amount of money. After, well, it's the kind of money that most of us, we buy some stocks now and then. In 92 days, her investment went up by about a $1.8 million profit. To put that in perspective, that's about 10 times as much as Nancy Pelosi makes in a single year as a member of Congress. Now, the profits from that trade alone would put her earnings equivalent to 10 years of her salary, and that doesn't make any sense. Glad to have you with me on a Monday. If you want to vote in our poll on X, should the government be allowed to police big tech censorship? In other words, not the government censoring, but when big technology companies like social media platforms decide to start uh, you know, censoring their own users, and not because they're putting up things that are illegal, and that would be drug dealing, uh, advancing, say, human trafficking of people across a border. Things like that are illegal. Those things should be removed, often are not removed by social media platforms. But when they start to crack down on people because of their political comments that are not threatening, that doesn't make any sense. Let's go to Matt, who's a naysayer. Hey, Matt, you know that we love naysayers on this program. And in fact, the number is 866-439-5277. So, Matt, since you're a naysayer, what do you and I disagree about tonight? Well, Lars, not only you, but... uh... Jim Early, you just had on just a Joe second Early. ago. Yeah, Joe Early. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, so you got some guy that's a Buddhist that wants to light himself on fire in the military, 
And the, the problem is, is that the Democrats have eased up the, the admittance into the military so, so much that there's no background checks, no psychological checks. Nobody knows who, who is coming into the military anymore. And so you got some yo-yo that wants to light himself on fire. And that's all because the Democrats have, have eased up the entrance exams, especially for, you know, you want to be a transvestite, you can join the military or what, you know, don't, don't tell, don't say, don't, you know, nothing like that. What's going on there? Well, hold on. Um, as far as, as psychological exams, I don't, I don't know whether or not they give the MMPI or any of those other exams, but should yes, this young did. man's... They used to. Go ahead. They used to. I know, but they what I'm to. saying... At one time they used to, but they don't do it anymore. But, but Matt... Should the people that this young man served under or next to have, if they had some indication of what he might have planned to do, should they have done something about it? Well, if they did, then they would be uh, 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 punished for it because they brought something up that should not have been brought up. And by the uh, way, Matt, I pointed out, can, can I point this out to you? This is not, I mean, I'm going to say it's worse under the policies of the last two or three years, because I think Joe Biden has made the military into a much more of a social experiment than it ever was before. But even the policies going back as far as Bill Clinton to don't ask, don't tell. That is, we're going to we're going to let people serve in the military. Just don't tell us you're gay and, and we'll be OK with that. And now more recently, transgender people within the military and some of them in command ranks as well. And I also pointed out Major Nidal Hassan. That goes back to 2009. That's 15 years ago. So long before Joe Biden, uh, although just at the very beginning of Barack Obama's time in office, um, that was a man who was wandering or I mean, not wandering around, but he was a major in the U.S. military. And there were people around him who wrote memos saying this guy's got some crazy ideas and the military ignored it until he showed up at Fort Hood, Texas, and murdered 13 people. So well, that you, part of it is... They, do you think they had a plan to begin with? Do I think who had a plan? The Democrats. I mean, this, we're, we're becoming a socialist country right now. Yes, I agree with that. It's coming on because of Democrats, and we're becoming China right now. Do you, do you, wonder, do you, do you believe me there? Oh, I do. But, Matt, if I were to I, I always find the best way to test my arguments is try to argue back against myself. When did Major Nidal Hassan do his dirty deeds and murder 13 people and shoot 30? 2009. That was at the end of George Bush's time in office. It was just at the very beginning of Barack Obama's time in Barack Obama and Joe Biden's time in office. So it's hard for me to say that all happened because uh, that problem was allowed to fester. And who did it fester, fester under the most? Well, that would have been George W. Bush. So I can't lay all the blame on the Democrats in that case, but it's an interesting point. I never figured out what we disagree about. Let's go to Cyrus. Hey, Cyrus, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Uh, yes, sir. Thank you for taking my call. I am going to uh, bring in some of the issues like uh, one of the major disputes in Ukraine and Russia is about Crimea. Zelensky wants to take the, uh, Crimea. But actually, Crimea was a part of the Russia, was 
given for a long time. A joint, yeah, yeah, in 1954. So anyway, it's, I mean, there are a lot of fighters from the, I mean, uh, World War Two, uh, or there or uh, industrial situation, uh, but now uh, it's it's mess. That I mean, we're talking about uh, our, uh, I mean, corrupt people in the Ukraine government also selling our weapons to terrorists. They, I mean, that's very dangerous. Yeah, it is. Do that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, point, Cyrus, yeah. when this all began, I made the point: we're going to send weapons and tens of billions of dollars into a notoriously corrupt country. What would you expect the result to be? And the answer we got back was Joe's decided to take a, take to involve us in this war, and uh, and that's what he's going to do. Um, I I've been questioning our involvement in that war since day one. And also a war that Joe Biden seemed an invasion of Ukraine that Joe Biden invited. And now to find out where we started all this today was the New York Times over the weekend on Sunday published a story saying that uh, 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 more than a decade ago, about a decade ago, the CIA decided to set up 12 secret intelligence bases in Ukraine to spy on Russia. And And I've asked people if we reverse the situation. If China befriended Mexico and then said, okay, we're good friends now, can we set up some secret spy bases on the south side of the Mexico-U.S. border, would we tolerate that? Or would we see that as a threat? And almost universally, people say, yeah, we'd see that as a threat. Well, I, I know I get I get labeled as a Putin stooge all the time. I'm not on Bla- Vladimir Putin's side of this. I'm on America's side of this. I'm asking... Yes. Why did the U.S. set up secret spy bases a decade ago in Ukraine? And why did we have 40-some biological laboratories in Ukraine? And should I believe my government when they say, oh, there's nothing to see there, when even people like Victoria Newland, who had worked in the State Department for 20 years, sat there in front of Rand Paul in the Senate, and he asked her, are there biological weapons labs in Ukraine? Now, we've been told all along that those labs were only about public health, which I assume means, I don't know, avoiding communicable diseases and things like that. And yet Victoria Newland told the U.S. Senate, well, we can't allow these clinics, these laboratories to fall into the hands of Russia. Well, if all they're about is preventing people from having sexually transmitted diseases or the flu or or whatever... I wouldn't worry too much about them hand, falling into Russian hands. It was something more than that, then a different answer. Thank you for the call, Cyrus. transmit disease through the radio trust me you don't want what he has more with lars larson welcome back to the lars larson show on this monday glad to get your calls at 866 hey lars send emails to talk at larslarson.com check out our instagram feed yes you will find i have a face for radio but i've had to live for my whole life and i'm okay with that um 
I want to talk about big technology, social media platforms, and the case that was heard before the U.S. Supreme Court today. So I got Dan Schneider on, who's vice president of the Media Research Center's Free Speech America. Dan, welcome back. Lars, thank you for having me back. It's a big, big day. It is. And I'll tell you, just let me say this parenthetically, you'll never find a bigger supporter of the the free market uh, than me. I mean, I, I support the free market all day long. I also support the right of private companies to do legally whatever they want to do. But I see social media companies as a bit different because of something they claim which is special protection for the speech that they engage in by publishing things. And they are now acting like publishers, but demanding the protection they get from Section 230. Am I wrong to see it that way? Look, look this you've just used a lot of really big legal concepts. I know you talk about this with your audience a lot. So they probably sure. hear it quite a bit. Let me just, at the risk of really getting into the weeds and sounding really boring, it's important for people to understand what a common carrier is. Yep. You know, it, it's like your telephone company, AT&T or Verizon. Common carriers are not allowed to discriminate, and that's the legal term, discriminate or deny service to people. So, you know, as long as, you know, you're paying your bills, that sort of thing. And you're operating you legally. Verizon or AT&T. Well, well Dan. No, you Dan don't even have to operate legally. Well, but but to really make it, can can I throw this example in? So I show up in your town, Dan, and I say, hey, I'm here to represent uh, Planned Parenthood. Now, I don't like Planned Parenthood, but you're the phone company. And they say, we need 20 telephones for our new Planned Parenthood baby killing center. And they say, why, sure, we'll install 20. And then I come, another guy comes in and says, hey, I'm here from the NRA. We're setting up a new satellite office in your town. We'd like 20 phones. And the phone company says, buzz off. We don't like you Second Amendment types. The, the phone company is not allowed to do that because as a common carrier, now if somebody showed up and said, I'm running a, a boiler room to scam people out of their life savings or I'm selling methamphetamine or I'm trafficking people across the border, I could see the phone company saying, we're not going to set up phones for you to engage in illegal activities. But if if you're Planned Parenthood or the NRA or the Sierra Club or whatever, we're going to give you phones because we're a common carrier. We have to provide service to you whether we like your politics or not. Is that a good yeah. example of what that is? That, that Well, you've given two really important examples. The first is, like, that's right, Planned Parenthood, the telephone company, has to provide them phones. And this is not some... FDR socialist era type of thing. This has been the law for hundreds and hundreds of years, the common law going back to England and, and, and present. So this is not some newfangled New Deal thing. This is economic reality and the law that is, has existed. Now, this, the guy who wants to sell methamphetamines, <laughs> if he picks up the phone and makes a deal over the phone, or if a terrorist picks up the phone and calls in a bomb strike, the telephone company, because they cannot discriminate or deny service to these people, they the telephone company is not held liable for how their customers use their service. Right. And that's the key here. Big tech, these platforms, they are common carriers. They're not supposed to discriminate or deny service to people. And in exchange, when, when somebody posts, 
some racist thing on their site or somebody posts something that's even illegal, these big tech companies then are not liable. That's how common carrier law works. So in the Supreme Court today, and I was in the courtroom front row for the hearings the te- on the Texas Lucky law guy. and the Florida law. I'd have loved and, to have sat in on that, but go ahead. Yes, and, and big tech was being represented by a pretty well-known conservative, and, and generally the conservatives line up against big tech on this issue, but they've hired this well-known conservative to be their lawyer in, in front of the Supreme Court. He was specifically asked by Justice Sotomayor, are you telling me that you think the big tech can discriminate against people based on their religion or their ethnicity? <laughs> and he said, yes. Whoa! We can discriminate based on ethnicity and religion. And that's what's going on today already. Facebook has banned you know, uh, certain Indians uh, from the country of India simply because the country of India does not like these Punjabi Indians. And so they've been banned from Facebook because of who they are, because of their ethnicity. And, and this is big tech's position. They should be allowed to discriminate. Now, for many, I know, Lars, you've got really, really smart listeners. So many of them will have heard of the Plessy versus Ferguson yep. case. Landmark Plessy Supreme Court case. Yep. Landmark, now, now greatly uh, despised, but... In the Plessy case from the 1800s, the Supreme Court ruled that a railroad, a common carrier, a railroad could deny service to black people. That was the law of the land for about 60 years. And finally, the Supreme Court said, no, that, we cannot allow that. That's <laughs> the only time that the Supreme Court limited the common carrier law to say so- that that the company can go ahead and discriminate because common carriers are not allowed to discriminate. Nope. So that what big tech wants is to return to the Plessy standard and be able to discriminate against people based on their color, based on their beliefs, based on their religion, based on anything they want. They should be able to, to discriminate. This has never been the law of the land except for a brief time in our nation's history with Plessy versus Ferguson. Now, let me ask you this real quick. We've got about a minute left. Section 230 protection goes to platforms. And I point out to my audience all the time, I don't enjoy that protection, nor do I want it. I am responsible for everything that goes on this show. If you came on and defamed somebody on my show, you get sued, but I'll get sued too for having put you on because I'm a publisher, like a newspaper, like TV, like books or anything else. These guys say, we're not publishers, we're platforms. Well, as a platform... Can they can they then say, eh, but we decide what we carry and what we don't? Can they do that? Well, Justice Gorsuch did an amazing job, again, with the big tech lawyer, saying, wait just a second. You're telling me that if you're a platform, then you can uh, engage in any speech and you're not going to be held liable. And you're also telling me that if you're a, a, a publisher, that you can do whatever speech you want and you're not going to be liable for it. You, you, speech is different in both worlds. And he said, yes, that's right. Speech is not speech. Speech is speech, and speech is not speech. He sounded like a complete buffoon. No doubt. That's Dan Schneider from Media Research Center. Dan, the thanks. Lars Larson Show. Dan is always great.
We tend not. Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. I know. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize for being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll get to your phone calls here in a moment. But i got to tell you about a story that I thought was going to get a lot more attention over this past weekend. And, of course, it came from one of the most prominent Democrat-beloved media institutions in America, and that would be the New York Times. So if you're inclined to attack me because you say, where the heck did you get all that crazy stuff, Lars? I say, well, the New York Times. Isn't that the Democrats' daily Bible? But here's what they came out with, and it actually fits. It makes sense with what some of us think is the reason there is a war in Ukraine. Okay, I'll get to that in just a moment. But the New York Times says that about a decade ago, under Barack Hussein Obama, the administration of Obama and Biden, that secret intelligence bases were set up in Ukraine, and they've been there for the last decade. You say, well, hold on a second. Why do we have secret intelligence bases in Ukraine? Now, even somebody who hasn't seen the map recently would say, well, Lars, Ukraine is right next to Russia. It's a great place to keep an eye on Russia. And if you think, well, hold on a second, the New York Times is reporting this. So I have a feeling either the folks who knew this information for the last decade and never made it public decided we better make it public now. Or they knew that somebody else was working on the story and that it was going to be made public. But let me remind you of what happened about a decade ago in Ukraine that was a game changer for that country. So Ukraine has been kind of a pinball or a tennis ball between the West, meaning the United States and Western Europe, and Russia for a long, long time. And each of the two sides would like to have Ukraine be more friendly to them. So you'd have somebody who was pro-Russia in the presidency and other important spots in that government. And then you'd have people who were pro-West. Well, what happened in 2014? There was something called the Maidan Revolution. Now, if you listen to liberals talk about the Maidan Revolution, they say, oh, yeah, that was when the Ukrainian people rose up and they decided that they didn't like their current leadership and they got rid of their current leadership. Well, their leadership at the time was a pro-Russian president, and he had been actually talking to both sides. He was talking to both the European Union and he was talking to Russia, and I think he was actually trying to get the best deal from Ukraine. But in theory, the people of that country did what the people of the United States did with Great Britain. We said, we don't want a king anymore, and they kicked him out and declared their freedom. What actually happened was the Obama administration engineered the Maidan Revolution. If you don't believe me, there are plenty of articles about this. It's M-A-I-D-A-N, Maidan Revolution. And if you watch uh, Oliver Stone's movie called Ukraine on Fire, it's all about the Maidan Revolution. So what happened? Well, uh, Victoria Newland, who worked for uh, Barack Obama at the State Department, she's actually been in the government for the last 20, 25 years, She helped engineer all of this. And you say, well, hold on. Does that mean we were messing 
in their elections. We were messing in their government. We were trying to determine which direction Ukraine would point. Instead of having a neutral country between Western Europe and Russia in the form of Ukraine, we were trying to take, get them to take a side. And you say, yeah, that's exactly what Obama was doing. And it's what he did. They successfully bounced out the former president who actually had to flee for his life to Russia because there were people trying to assassinate him. You say, well, Lars, can you back all this up? Yes, I can. Right after the Maidan revolution, the Obama administration, uh, they, they put down 12 different intelligence bases in Ukraine. Now, they used the excuse. They said, we're just trying to bring the Ukrainian intelligence apparatus up to the uh, uh, 21st century. Well, what they did was they said, this is a great place to keep an eye on Russia. Now, what is one of Vladimir Putin's biggest concerns? And I know I'm going to get nasty emails from a lot of people on this. Look, I'm not on Putin's side. I'm on America's side. Do I want America to be strong? Yes. Do I want foreign countries messing in our elections or our leadership? No. And in fact, you're, you're going to hear Democrats, they're already starting to do it, say Russia is trying to affect the election in favor of Trump, even though they tried that once before, and it turned out to be a big, fat lie from Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, the CIA, the FBI, and all the major media, who went along with the lie for literally years. And they say it's just evil when a foreign country messes about your elections, except this is what we were doing. Under Obama, we engineered the ouster of the old president. And you say, well, didn't they have a vote in their Congress, their parliament? Yes, they did. Did they get enough votes to get rid of the old president? No, they didn't. They fell short. Well, then he didn't leave. Oh, no, he ended up leaving. They kicked him out anyway. They said, it doesn't matter that we didn't get enough votes to get him out. He's gone. And they got rid of him. And then the U.S. put 12 secret bases along the Russian border. And you say, well, that's crazy tinfoil hat stuff, Lars. No, it's actually straight out of the New York Times, which does do tinfoil hat from time to time. But in this case, they're just saying we have had intelligence bases in Ukraine and biolabs. I've talked about that as well. Um, but you say, well, why is Putin worried about Ukraine? Oh, I don't know, because the United States has established secret intelligence bases to monitor his country. And here's the best comparison I could come up with. Say, what happens if someday China does Mexico or Canada enough favors? And, you know, they're doing this in other parts of the world. They come in with their Belt and Road Initiative and they say, hey, how would you like some new ports or maybe new highways or new infrastructure? We can make all that happen. You just have to do us a few favors. What would the United States say if Russia befriended Mexico and one day we find out there are a dozen Russian intelligence bases located on the south side of the U.S.-Mexico border, keeping an eye on what's going on on the north side of the U.S.-Mexico border? And so we wouldn't tolerate that any more than we tolerated Soviet missiles in Cuba. Really? So if you're Putin and you look at Ukraine, where the Russia-friendly president has been kicked out. We've installed a Western-friendly EU and America-friendly president instead. And then you've set up secret intelligence bases in Ukraine as though you're going to be there for a long, long time and you're going to keep an eye on Russia. Would you take that as a provocative move? If uh, Justin Trudeau, that communist from Canada, if he all of a sudden said, 
hey, China, we like you pretty well. What would you like to put in our country? And they said, well, we'd like to put a few intelligence bases on America's northern border in Canada, of course, and you'll let us do it. Can you imagine how the United States would react to that? I have a feeling we might have a reaction that would be very Putin-esque, if you will. Anyway, this is brand new. Sunday, the New York Times publishing a gigantic story about how U.S. intelligence has been in Ukraine for the last decade, looking at Russia, monitoring Russia with our friends, the Ukrainians, and their Nazi friends like the Azov Battalion, things like that. But nothing to see here, folks. Can you imagine why this big New York Times story is not getting a whole bunch of attention from everybody else in the media? Because it doesn't fit the Biden narrative. Back in a moment. Glad to get your calls. 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Exploiting your First Amendment right every single day. This is Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And as you might imagine, I care a lot about free speech rights, uh, in part at least, uh, because of what I do for a living. But even if I weren't doing this for a living, uh, being a talk show host and giving my opinion, I'd still care about keeping my free speech rights. I also understand that Private institutions are different than government institutions. And if you work for a private company like a newspaper, a TV station, or a radio station, um, you can decide what goes on the air and what does not go on the air. That's because all of those I just mentioned are publishers. But when it comes to social media, they're a different animal. They're called social media uh, platforms, and they get a special kind of protection that is granted by the government that makes them immune from certain kinds of lawsuits. Not all lawsuits, but certain kinds of lawsuits. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court is hearing arguments today about a case that may change that because of some laws in Florida and Texas. And I invited Jessica Malusion on with the Competitive Enterprise Institute to talk about this. Jessica, welcome back. Thank you very much. What are we expecting? Well, I want you to frame it as well, because I'm not going to tell you what to say, but but or put words in your mouth. I hate it when people do that to me. But what's at stake here in this Supreme Court case involving net choice and Gonzalez versus Google? Well, today's case that we heard was about um, a couple laws, one from Florida and um, one from Texas. And those laws aren't exactly the same, but they're the same enough. Um, that the court decided to hear challenges to them on the same day. So we had back-to-back oral arguments, a lot of Supreme Courting, um, a lot of reasons to be glad you didn't have to uh, get grilled by the Supreme Court today, I can assure (laughs) everyone. Um, They they gave both sides a little bit of hell, and um, it was fun for those of us who follow these issues, um, but I I wouldn't want to be on the other side of that. So um, what what these laws, and you hit on it, right? Um, The question really before the court is, is, is this, what happens with First Amendment protections when we're talking about private companies? Right. So um, Florida and Texas had really, you know, they kind of had enough of some of the deplatforming, um, what they felt 
was a bi- the biased decisions about that. And they said, um, you know, you're so big or you're so influential that we, we've decided you've, you've somehow sort of crossed the line um, from being a private company and into, in Texas's case, saying um, you're a common carrier. Common so carrier. We see common carriers. Yeah, we see common carriers in, in things like uh, railroad, shipping freight, um, and even Trucking. in telecommunications. Um, yeah. Right, right, right. So, um, you know, they've, they've kind of said, listen, for all intents and purposes, these social media platforms have kind of become common carriers, and therefore we say they are not allowed to deny anyone um, access to their platforms. Florida's a little different. Um, they've kind of gone about it in a different way, and they say that, you know, what's been happening um, is viewpoint discrimination, and, and they don't want any of that. So the question the court has to ask um, is, is this a violation of people's free speech on these platforms? Or, in fact, are these still private companies and they have a right to their free speech? And on the, the flip side of free speech, of course, is um, a prohibition against compelled speech, meaning um, the government can't force you as a private entity or a private citizen to carry speech or say things that you don't mean. Um, so those people challenging the state laws are saying, hey, you're, you know, you might have these good intentions with protecting speech of users, but you're forgetting that these platforms are still private companies and they have a right to say, um, we don't want certain kinds of speech on our platform because we're trying to curate a certain environment here. And well, but Jessica, can I offer any, I want my audience to really understand, and this one is a, a kind of a complicated issue, but since it's the common carrier issue is one of them, let me give you an example, and you tell me if it fits. So you've got a phone okay. company, which is a common carrier. And uh, Planned Parenthood walks in and says, hey, we're setting up a new Planned Parenthood to kill babies. We need phones. And the phone company says, yeah, we love Planned Parenthood. We love killing babies. We'll set you up with all phones you want. Then the Republican Party comes in or a conservative group or the NRA, and they say, hey, uh, we advocate for Second Amendment rights. We're a conservative group. We'd like some phones. And the phone company says, screw you. We hate you, uh, gun gun folks. Get out of our office. We're not giving you any phones. A common carrier can't do that, can they? But yeah, that's right. Right now, um, phone companies are an example of something that is regulated as a common carrier. Um, right now, social media companies, I mean, this is sort of Texas's attempt to put them in that category, right? Right. But there really hasn't been a law passed that says um, they they are. Um, and it's, it's, it's nuanced, like you were saying, and I don't want to bore anyone, but it's a little bit different. It's more... So the analogy the other side would use, and you're right, that is a common carrier situation. You can't deny access to people. Um, because you don't the question, like their message. Right. Right, 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 right. Exactly right. Um, the the analogy that the other side would talk to you about is a different case that involves um, a St. Patrick's Day parade in Boston many years ago. And uh, that came to the court, and they said, hey, you know, we're having this St. Patrick's Day parade, and we don't want to let these certain people have a float and participate in our parade. And in that case, the court said, well, yeah, because your parade is kind of speech, right? You're kind of communicating something, and you're allowed. Right. So what the question before the court is, is social media more like a parade or a newspaper editorial page where you wouldn't want the government saying you have to run everyone's letter to the editor or you have to let every um, float in, right? Or is it more like a communication service? where we're just going to say everybody gets on 
and and you're not allowed to exclude anyone. But, that, but, that's but with, really the, the question before the court. But with one difference, Jessica, and tell me if I'm wrong about this. When I broadcast this radio show, I'm responsible for everything. If somebody calls in and defames Jessica Malusian, says Jessica Malusian is a convicted mass murderer, and that's defamatory, it's you know, and it's untrue, and I let it go on the air, I get sued. If Facebook, Twitter, or any of the rest, X, whatever, if they let something on, they're given protection saying, well, you can't be responsible for things that people say on Twitter because you've promised to be a platform open to all. And we understand there will be some things you won't let people post plans for nuclear bombs or recipes or ricin and, and things like that. But we will let everybody else on. The minute they start to differentiate, say, well, we like all the Joe Biden stuff about what a great president he's been. We don't like all this Donald Trump nonsense. So we're going to lock that stuff out. Don't they go from being a platform open to all to being a publisher? And at that point, they lose their Section 230 protection, don't they? Uh they don't. You're correct in, in you have very accurately identified a difference in the way that light. So this isn't a free speech question. This is a liability question, right? right. You're liable. Right. A newspaper is liable, right? So um, that that is correct. The liability works in a way where, you know, you're kind of the filter, right? And you're being held responsible for that. Yep. The content that you let through the filter. Exactly correct. And And platforms do not. And so what you're talking about is a law from 1996, Section 230. And uh, it was a bipartisan effort at the time, and these two congressmen, uh, Ron Wyden and Chris Cox, a Democrat and a Republican, got together and said, well, we know that traditional liability works like this, but we're kind of worried because this new Internet thing is coming along, and there's these uh, message boards. We didn't have social media platforms then. We had message boards. I don't know if anyone else is old oh, enough yeah. to remember, but trust me, we did. <laughs> um, and um, they were worried because some of these message boards were leaving up really offensive posts by people because they said, hey, you know, these message boards said, we know how liability works. And if we take stuff down, even though we'd kind of like to, because we'd like more people to want to spend time on our platform and they're offended by this, we'd like to take it down. But we know that that triggers publisher liability. And we know if we act more like a common carrier, you can't sue us. Exactly right. Jessica Malusian. Jessica is with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Jessica, I ran out of time there, but thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're always great. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's always right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. We've always done it. We always will. If you want to send an email, talk at LarsLarson.com. You can also vote in our poll on X. It used to be called Twitter. Now it's X. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. And you can check out our Instagram feed, all the other social media we put up every single interview on the program is free of charge you'll find it at larslarson.com the lars larson show Just your volume. 
He's just that loud. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Are you going to hold it against me if I say that the U.S. Supreme Court is a bunch of underworked, lazy people who dodge the really big, important decisions that the country ought to have made? Well, I'll put that to Ben Weingarten, who's editor of Real Clear Investigations. He writes for a bunch of other outlets as well, including the uh, Benjamin Weingarten Substack. Ben, welcome back to the program. Lars, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. I I don't see that the Supreme Court is overworked by any stretch. So I fail to understand why they would avoid this case. Uh, T.J. High, which is Thomas Jefferson High in the Commonwealth of Virginia versus Fairfax County School Board, because this one seemed to be the perfect case to take up, not because I agree with one side or the other. I do have a side in there, but it had all of the right elements and none of the other complications that make for bad Supreme Court decisions. So why did they dodge it? Well, as you noted, this is a critical case, and the American people should be demanding clarity, quite frankly, on to what extent race-based preferences or proxies for race-based preferences ought to be accepted in everything from public schools to workplaces and beyond. And the Supreme Court anticipated that a case just like this, to your point, would ultimately come before it when they delivered their opinion in that SFFA v. Harvard case last year, which essentially did away with affirmative action in higher education. And the justices said, and Chief Justice Roberts said, in the majority opinion that basically to the schools, you shouldn't try to find workarounds, clever workarounds for imposing affirmative action by another name, whether in essays or otherwise, that allow you to continue discriminating on the basis of race without explicitly doing it through quotas, etc. And in this case, like you said, this was an elite, well-regarded, hyper-competitive magnet school in Fairfax County, Virginia. What happens in the throes of the George Floyd fervor, the anti-cultural revolution in 2020? The school board associated with TJ School says essentially we need better representation of Fairfax County, the quote-unquote equity agenda, People need to be represented based upon uh, their non-tangible attributes in schools, (laughs) including by their race and socioeconomic measures. And they try to impose it de facto through getting rid of essentially a series of standardized tests and replacing it with a whole slew of, quote unquote, soft factors, including factors that have nothing to do with students' academic achievement or, or their rigor, intellectual capacity. And what you see is before this program is instituted, admissions are overwhelmingly, offers are overwhelmingly going to Asian students, up to 75% in most classes. What happens after they impose this policy? Falls to 54% in the first class the year after. So that looks like a slam dunk case. The district court says this was discrimination by another name and strikes down the admission standards based on the same logic the court, Supreme Court used in that Harvard case, but an appeals court overturns that ruling in the Supreme Court, only two justices dissent when the Supreme Court says we're not going to take up this case. So the judges have not really explained what the rationale was for not taking it up. The most optimistic potential read that we could have of why they wouldn't hear this case would be that there are some other cases percolating that are even stronger than this one. But I I remain pessimistic, and I think the American people ought to as well, because time and again we've seen the Supreme Court try to take the middle route or try to 
slowly build up its precedent to get to what is ultimately the right answer. And when it comes to race-based preferences, really systemic discrimination baked into our system directly or by proxy, that's something the court should want to overturn that kind of injustice every single time it potentially can. And here, unfortunately, only two justices dissented, and they're the only, in my view, consistently reliable justices on most issues, and that's Justices Thomas and Alito. I'm talking to Ben Weingarten. You've, you can find his Substack, and you also find him as editor of Real Clear Investigations. Because, Ben, I think about the real damage that is done to real kids. Because you've got a kid, a smart kid, who's hit the books. Maybe he was encouraged by parents. Maybe he did it on his own. He, he aces the test and says, okay, I'm in at TJ High. And he knows if he gets a high school diploma from TJ, you know, it opens up all kinds of opportunities. And then they say, sorry, too many Asians, uh, you're, you're not going to get in. We're going to put, we're going to leave your spot for less academically well-qualified white, black, brown, whatever color, uh, students. And it's got to send a bizarre message to Americans to say, you mean you kept the smart kids out and you left their slots for people who didn't do as well on the test who could have? I mean, I I refuse to believe, Ben, that any kid of any color can't do well on those tests if they apply that kind of a a work ethic and an inclination. I want to do well on the test. Okay, study hard, you know, practice taking the test. When you're when you're ready, go. If you get the best scores, you're getting in. Unless in this case, the Supreme Court says it's okay to lock a bunch of the Asian kids out because we've got too many of them in the school. That sh- that should be something that that maybe was said in the 30s, 40s, or 50s. Cert- cert- certainly shouldn't be true in 2024. Wholeheartedly agree. They're real victims to these policies. You know, conservative scholars and even non-conservative intellectuals for decades have talked about how race-based preferences ultimately end up harming both the purported beneficiaries as well as the actual victims of it. And here, I think Justice Alito, in his dissent, which was only signed by Justice Thomas, he, he laid it out very starkly and clearly. What the Fourth Circuit majority held, and that was the appeals court that ended up overturning the district court's decision to strike down this policy, what the Fourth Circuit majority held, in essence, is that intentional racial discrimination is constitutional so long as it is not too severe. And the only dissenting judge in the Fourth Circuit, Judge Allison Jones Rushing, she said that under the majority's approach, if a new law cut a racial group success rate from 90 percent to 30 percent, but the legislator was open about its discriminatory purpose, it's okay as long as no other racial group succeeded at a higher rate. So it just has everything so perverse. There are certain levels of discrimination that are okay. There are other levels of discrimination that aren't. Discrimination that's explicit, not okay, but discrimination by proxy is okay. That, that, that lack of clarity alone should have screamed out for the court to step in here, in particular because the appeals court itself had a split ruling. Each judge had their own rationale for coming to the decision that they did. So it's bad for the rule of law. It's bad for those who are discriminated against on both sides. And ultimately, what we have and what we're seeing across all of our institutions is you don't have excellence in institutions. And when you don't inculcate excellence and when you don't demand achievement, ultimately, and greatness, you're going to have institutions in decline and a nation in decline, ultimately. And that is the consequence of these sorts of policies. 
Well, and think about this, Ben. I never, I, I got a decent SAT score, but it wasn't stratospheric. But all the folks I know who got the really big scores, they're all comparing notes. Oh, yeah, I got a 1400. I got a whatever the number was, you know, because they compare their, their box score, basically. Can you imagine being in that school saying, you know, meeting somebody new and say, Oh, you're a new student here. How'd you get in? What kind of score did you get? Oh, I got 900 on the Saturday, or I got 1100 and you say, hmm, that's kind of funny because everybody else here is getting a 12 or a 1300. How do you get in? It's going to work against that kid, young man or woman, who's going to have people around them realize you got in because you were given an advantage over kids who are better at the book work than you were. And, and I can't imagine even kids. I mean, it'd be like trying out for the football team saying, can't run the 100 yards very fast, can't throw a ball to save my life, but I'm the right color, so I got on the team. I don't think that's going to go over well with anybody, and it's going to work against the young man or woman who's given this so-called advantage of being let in for their skin color instead of being let in because they're smart. Ben Weingarten, you can find him on Substack and at Real Clear Investigations. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show and check me out on Instagram. strong Wi-Fi signal, his voice will reach you. This is Lars Larson. The idea that Republicans, in order to win an election, say we need to hermetically seal the border when they know that that would be, that is economic self-sabotage to the U.S. economy. Now, that, of course, is Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, former bartender and now a member of Congress and Let's just say she won't be bringing chips and salsa to the Mensa picnic this year or just about any year in the future. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I mean, she is about as dumb as a bag of hammers, but let me get into it. I got a couple of sound bites with her to share. First, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer and you disagree with me, you're going to go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our poll on X, which used to be the Twitter poll. You can find that at Lars Larson Show. But listening to AOC saying, why, you can't cut us off from these millions of illegal aliens because that would absolutely wreck the U.S. economy. You would kind of expect her to back up Joe Biden's massive illegal alien invasion of America. What is a bit stunning is that she's now using the argument last used by slave-owning Democrats 175 years ago. You can't take away my slaves. Wow, that would wreck our economy. But hear her repurposing it as a young lady of color seems really stunning. And the other piece to this, if you want to know if you might even tend to agree with her, saying we need those illegal aliens. We don't need 10 million of them, I can tell you that, number one. Number two, what kind of, prior to the, prior to the pandemic, what kind of economy did America have 
in the years up to the under Donald Trump, up to the pandemic? And the answer was we had a booming economy. We had record low levels of unemployment among black Americans, brown Americans, gay Americans, teenage Americans, female Americans, record low levels of unemployment. That means they were working because the opportunities were there. Now, she seems to think that when Donald Trump brought about one of the lowest levels of illegal entry to the country in American history, that somehow that crushed the economy. Well, it didn't happen during Donald Trump, but guess what's happening to the economy under Joe Biden? Something worse. So why would that wreck the economy? Take a listen to AOC's other argument about why we should not shut down the massive invasion across our southern border. And to compensate for the negative effects, we're going to allow and throw people's kids into factories. That is what they are doing in rolling back child labor laws while being as xenophobic and anti-immigrant as, as they are. And while ginning up this this false narrative about this being a crisis, and by the way, by then also preventing and blocking any legislation yeah. that would provide not just a path to citizenship, but a path to work papers, a path to allowing people who want to work to be paired with American businesses who need people to work. I can tell you who you can get to work. Right now, we have a labor force participation rate of about 62%. That means 38% of the working age, able-bodied population is not working a job. We have plenty of people to work those jobs. And that should be opportunity for America. And instead, she says, well, you can't block work permits. Yes, we can. For people who came into the country illegally, yes, we can and we should. Now, let me tell you what's coming up just two days from now, less than two days from now. Now, President Joe Biden and President Donald Trump are going to stage dueling visits to the U.S.-Mexico border on Thursday. They're going to be there the same day because Joe Biden has finally realized that he has to do something about this problem. He's been doing worse than nothing about the problem for the last three years. He's actually signed 94 executive orders that undid every one of Donald Trump's border policies. Why? Well, because, number one, he wanted to not do anything Donald Trump was doing. But number two, he wanted to make sure this invasion of the illegals happened. Trump achieved the lowest level of illegal alien crossings in modern history. Biden has inflicted literally the highest level of illegal alien crossings in American history. So Biden is going to go to Brownsville, Texas, and he's going to meet with Border Patrol agents, probably a carefully screened group. Meantime, where's Donald Trump going to go? He's going to go to Eagle Pass, Texas. Now, why? Because Eagle Pass, Texas is ground zero for the invasion of America. It's where just last week they found literally over a $100 million in illegal drugs attempted to be smuggled in through the regular border crossing, the legitimate one. And it's where we've seen thousands and thousands of people every single day that have been crossing illegally into America. And senators had signed off on this absolutely insane plan. They came up with this plan. Langford of uh, Oklahoma had come up with this plan to legalize the crossing of up to 5,000 illegals a day. Now, that would that be better than 10,000 a day under open borders, Joe? Absolutely. But only in relative terms. 5,000 people a day is a crisis. 
And AOC claims this crisis is all mythology. It's just made up. But it didn't stop slow Joe from mocking the idea that Donald Trump would oppose legalizing 5,000 illegal aliens a day coming into the country. Joe Biden posted this, or his campaign did, this weekend. Take a listen. Well, they allow 5,000 people a week, but a lot of people took it as 5,000 people a day. It made it much better for the opposing side. You know, he just admitted it. He sabotaged our bipartisan deal, bipartisan deal to secure the border because it made it much better for the opposing side. You know who the opposing side is? In this case, it's America. Donald Trump roots against America every chance he gets. He's only in this for himself. You know, this is such severe gaslighting. I've got to explain this. Biden says Trump opposes the plan because it's bad for the other side. And then Joe Biden defines that other side as all of America. Well, the other side has signed off on 10 million illegal aliens invading America in the last three years. I'd like you to introduce me to this American that Joe Biden seems to think exists, who says, yeah, that's great. Let people break our laws. Give them a free plane ticket anywhere they want to go. Give them a nice hotel room. Give them some walking around money. Give them medical care. Give them all those things I'm happy to pay. Now, if Joe Biden thinks that Americans like his plan so much, why is it that on the issue of the border, Joe Biden's approval ratings are in the mid-20s? Joe Biden has failed on the border. He knows he's failed on the border. And Thursday, Joe Biden, who's been a senator for decades, he was vice president, he's now president, Joe Biden is going to make his second visit in his entire life to the southern border of the United States, where there's been a crisis going on for three years, and the president has avoided the place like the plague. He's only been there, this will be the second time is in, in his entire political career. Think on that for a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.